1 Corinthians 6. Turn with me into 1 Corinthians. While you're turning, you know, uh, I, I went through 1 Corinthians. I was studying 1 Corinthians in my, on my own, in my own personal quiet times and walks, and really felt like the things that you see in 1 Corinthians, the culture in which Paul was writing to, the, the things that were invading the church and penetrating the church, really, uh, uh, really mimic where we are today. And uh, there are so many things about us that, that so many things that we bring in of, into the church that are of the world, so many things that are, so many philosophies, so many ideologies, so many so many things that we we lies that we bought into that we bring into the world, and that's where that's where the church of First Corinthians was. And there are so many things about this book. We're we're going to get into some some really uh, could be divisive things, and and I really pray that um, we'll not let them divide. There there are going to be some things that within this body that we're going to disagree. There are great godly men and women who love this Word, who we're doing the best we can to understand the Word, but we'll, we'll disagree on some points. There are some things we won't disagree on, like the deity of Jesus Christ, that He's the only way to heaven, the, the truths of Jesus Christ, we're going to be hand and we're going to be together on. There's going to be some other things that we'll vary a little bit on. And, and I, I, the more and more I study this Word... And the more and more I learn of this word, the humbling thing is the more and more I realize that I don't know of this word. The more and more grip and the grasp that I get on this word and the more, the more thing. I mean, I, I live every day just with the burden to learn more and more of this word as your pastor because I realize there's so much of this word that I don't know. I want to and I'm seeking after it. And, and, but the challenge for us is to not let it divide us. That's the challenge. The challenge for us all is to stay humble and not think we've got this thing figured out. I'll be, I'll be dogmatic as can be on the deity of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of this word, the inerrancy of this word, the Trinity, things like that. But, but I will, I'll remain humble on some of the things that I hold as convictions, but that others differ. And I remember, I remember it was one of those things where you hear it and it stuck with me, and, I, and I'm grateful that I heard it. Uh, a, a pastor that I respect a great deal said this, we all have holes in our theology, we just don't know where they are. The challenge for all of us is to approach God's Word wanting to know the truth, not standing in judgment over it, it's standing in humility under it, and allowing the Word of God to speak. And guess what? There are going to be times where this Word is going to pierce us. It's going to wound us. It's going to cut you. It's going to cut me. Every day I come to this Word, I'm being disciplined by it. I, I, I was telling some people Wednesday night at our thing, and I, I had an attitude of, of lacked thankfulness. I go to uh, do a Bible study with Miss Esther there on Wednesday, and as I was driving away, getting on the interstate, I spoke to them about thank, thankfulness, thanksgiving. And the Holy Spirit, clear as day, God said, how are you doing on your thankfulness? There was a specific thing that I was not grateful for. I, was not, I should have been thankful for it. But because of sin, because of all other things, I wasn't. And the Word of God, it, it wounded me. Wounded me. But God's good for that. He's good for that. Because if I'm holding an attitude, if I'm, holding a, if I'm practicing something, if I'm doing something that does not line up with this Word of God, I want Him to wound me. I want him to draw me back. 
And so as we approach these, the challenge for us is going to be to pursue truth as hard as we can pursue truth. But we may differ at times. We might differ at times. And, and the challenge for us is to realize the things that we have to be in unity on and yet pursue truth in the things that we differ on, knowing that one day we're probably all going to be surprised with what it actually said. One day. One day. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing our best to understand it. So I say that just to, I'm a, hear me, I'm a people pleaser. At my core, I'm a people pleaser. I want people to get along. And, and yet we're going to look... You know, maybe we'll be raptured before January and I won't have to preach 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know, that's what I'm praying for. But no, I, I really, my, my point in choosing this book was because it forces us to deal with some things. My challenge for us is you ought to have convictions about these things. You ought to have convictions. We ought to pursue, we ought to be praying, God, teach me. Teach me. Give me a conviction. We ought to have a conviction. But, but the challenge is to stay humble on some of the things that we may not know exactly what it says. It's to, be, to remain humble. And, uh, and the more that I study this word, the more humbled I am because of, again, how much is there and how much I don't know. And so what we see today in 1 Corinthians 6 is a continuation, really, uh, through verse 11. If you were going to read it in, in its original you would connect chapter 5. Now again, in its original, there were no chapters. So we can get real choppy when it comes to the chapters. But really, the thought that Paul holds is through 611. And we're going to see that today. I mean, I, te- I, I keep you all here far too long oftentimes anyway. To try to have covered all of that last week would have been unmanageable. I think it would have been unfair to the Word of God. And so I have divided it. But what we see today is, is connected with chapter 5. And we looked last week at church discipline. And we talked about the purity of the church. We talked about how we need to have a right attitude towards sin, that we need to be willing to confront, that we need to be willing to deal with sin. We talked about that. We also said that, that if there is unrepentant, habitual, patterned lifestyle sin, we need to love each other enough to confront. And to, but we need a biblical approach to that. And we looked at Matthew 18, and he says, go individually. If you know if somebody's doing something, don't run to me. Don't tell other people. Go to that person individually. If, you, if they repent, verse 15 says, you've won your brother over. If they don't, then you take one or two others with you. If they still don't repent, you tell it to the church. If they still don't repent and we deal with it, then it says you throw them out of the church. But you do that for their good because, see, remember, that the church was all believers had then. They wouldn't just leave here and then go down, to, go down the street to Keystone Bible Fellowship, which Andrew Haney is phenomenal, that pastor there. Or, or they'll go somewhere else. That's what we do. To, they didn't have that privilege then. To not have the fellowship of believers, to not have the fellowship of the church was a huge deal. And Paul says, I gave them over to Satan to destroy their flesh as to save their soul. Ultimately, it was his salvation that he was most concerned with. But it was the purity of the church. And today, in that same, in that same arena, we're going to look at how, how do we deal with things when there are disagreements, when issues arise between church members, how do we deal with them? And, and just like last week, we're going to focus on the gospel. Paul continually brings you back to the gospel. When we look at, when we look at marriage, for instance, in a month, 
we have to keep the focus on the gospel. Don't, don't, the gospel has to be kept at the center. If I put my happiness at the center of marriage, what we read in the Bible will not make sense. If I keep the gospel at the center, it will make sense. There, and there is a tendency in all of us to put ourselves at the center and my happiness at the center. And it's not going to make sense. And what Paul said in chapter 5, throw somebody out, that does not make sense if it's about us, but it's not about us. It's about the purity of the church. It's about the purity of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel. And we will hopefully bring everything back always to the gospel. And there is always, again, there is a pull to put ourselves at the center of everything, to make everything about us. And when we do that, things break down. They don't make sense. And, and Paul is going to focus us squarely on the gospel here in 1 Corinthians 6. And again, even next week, Lord willing, verses 12 through 20, that bleeds in to chapter 7. Our, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The God dwells in us. He, he doesn't dwell in the tabernacle anymore. He dwells in you and I. That's where we have to be careful how we live. We are a visible representation. He dwells in us. And Paul's going to say, hey, when you join yourself to a prostitute, you're joining God Himself. You're the dwelling. How we live matters. He says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You see the point? Why do, why do I exist? Why do you exist? To glorify God. That's why we exist. Why does this group of believers exist? To collectively glorify God. It's not about us. It's not about my preferences. It's not about my wants. It's, not, it's, it's about glorifying God. That we set aside everything else in this world and we come together and encourage one another. Hebrews 10 says, Do not forsake the assembling together but encourage one another, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, as long as it's called encourage one another. That's why we're here, to encourage. And again, what we're going to read here, <coughs> it's not going to make sense if you don't keep the gospel at the center. What we're going to read in chapter 7, not going to make sense. What you're going to read in chapter 15 and the rest, it's not going to make sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, Does anyone among you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. 
you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then this is a great verse, verse 11. I love this verse. If you underline in your Bible, circle, whatever. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word today. Lord, I pray with all my heart that I would not go one step further than the word actually takes me. But Lord, give me the boldness to go as far as it takes me. Lord, help us to not shy away from the hard truths. Help us not shy away from convicting truths. Help us not shy away from the one and only truth that governs our lives. It's your word. Give us the courage to go as far as you take us in the word. And we ask this in your name. Amen. First point, you'll see it there on your handouts. Everything, and again, we're talking about how the gospel suffers. When we don't keep the gospel at the middle, when we make things about ourselves, the gospel suffers. And look at verse, first, first point here. The reputation and testimony of the gospel and the church are worth anything that it costs us. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 1 through 8, an overarching principle. He's saying a lot of things, but just to keep it simple and for us to walk out of here with a clear truth, the reputation and the testimony of the gospel is worth anything that it costs us. We ought to be willing to go to great lengths to protect the, the reputation and the testimony of the gospel. And we have seen time and time again, we could go through a myriad of verses, following Christ comes with a cost. Time and time again, writers say, count the cost. In Timothy 3.12, he says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for I do not consider the present suffering, or uh, that's Romans 8.18. He says, uh, it's, it's been given to you, not only to, it's been granted to you, not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer for His name. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted. That word there is grace. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, for, for, I, for I take great joy in the power of His resurrection, but also in the fellowship of His sufferings. Following Christ comes with great cost. We saw last week, 1 John 3.13, do not, do not be surprised when the world hates you. The reality is we should be surprised that the world doesn't hate us more. And it might indicate there's a problem in the church when the world doesn't hate us more, when the world is not more offended. Not that we go looking for it. We don't seek it out. And some of what being a follower of Christ, a Christian, will cost us comes in the form of the denial of rights, the denial of privileges, the retrieval of property, and, and the call to forgive when wrong. That's part of what it will cost us, and that's what we're dealing with here. But, but the gospel remains at the center of it all. And, and Paul says essentially that in, in verse 1, literally in our language, 
what we would say here is, how dare you let this happen? That's literally what Paul is saying. How dare y'all, we talked about the theology of y'all a few weeks ago. How dare y'all let this happen? I mean, the gall, the gall for you to let this take place. The word here for case literally means, it's a technical term and it means lawsuit. And he's calling out the whole church here, just like in chapter 5. He's not calling out the individuals who do this. He's calling out the church. He's saying, last week it was they refused to deal with sin. This week it's because they can't get over their disagreements. They can't deal with their disagreements. And instead of dealing with them, instead of coming back to the Bible, instead of coming to the church and allowing the church to deal with their stuff internally, they're going to the ungodly, the world, for them to render judgment. And instead of, instead of taking things to the church to deal with them and, and deal with the sufficiency the Word of God gives, they're going to let an, a non-believer render verdict against believers. Someone's been wronged here, and instead of keeping it in-house, instead of dealing with it with the Bible, in the church, with forgiveness, they're taking it to the world. And in doing so, the church's dirty laundry is being aired. We all have dirty laundry. We all have sin. And they're airing the church's dirty laundry. And in doing so, they're destroying the credibility, not only the Word of God, but the Gospel. It's telling the world, well, we don't really have sufficient guidance here. We don't really have sufficiency to deal with our problems. Can you come and help us? That, that's totally contrary to what the Word actually says. And Paul is appalled. He's astounded at the fact that they would allow the ungodly to judge when they've been adequately equipped to deal with in the Word. He doesn't understand it. And he gives a couple of, a couple of under, underlying truths here to, to, to protection of the Gospel and, and how it brings into question the integrity of the Word and the Gospel when we can't deal with our issues in-house. When we can't forgive. And the first thing he says is, you see it on your handout, by not being able to settle disputes in-house, Christians were bringing into question the wisdom God gives us through His Word and how to deal with disputes. That's what he says in verses 1 through 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not one among you wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? There's no one among you who can deal with this. No one among you that can help you walk through this. And Paul, in verses 1-5, through five, reminds them, your future determines your present. You're going to judge the whole world, believers. You can't judge this little issue. You're going to deal with matters of the whole world, and you can't deal with this one thing. He's saying, in light of, in light of what you're destined for, in light of what God has in store for you, think about the trivialness of this one issue. In a hundred years, he's saying, it ain't going to matter. It would be better for you to be defrauded for the integrity of the gospel than to deal. You're going to judge the world. And you can't judge these things. He says it makes no sense. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not confident to constitute the smallest law courts? You see, he's saying in light of the grand thing, these things are trivial. Trivial. 
And he can't believe the Corinthians, we've seen it, they prided themselves on being wise, and they were so wise. And he's taking a shot at them. You who claim to be wise, you can't find anybody wise enough to deal with this? You claim to be wise, but, but your behavior would say something totally different. And he says, that is a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame. You, you think about the illustration. I'm sure if you have a family, especially if your children are older, You've had conversations, and I remember looking back to my childhood, you had conversations with your family at the dinner table to deal with things that never left the dinner table, right? Hey, you don't go telling the world what, what's talked about at the dinner table. We're going to deal with stuff here at the dinner table, and when we get up from the dinner table, we're going to walk hand in hand because we're going to work it out here at the dinner table, and you better not share with other people what happens at the dinner table. Now, our dinner table right now as a family is about five, tw- if we get ten minutes, it's chaos. I mean, but, but as I remember growing up, there were things, hey, we would bring it, hey, let's talk about it at dinner. Let's work it out at dinner. We'd sit down and work it out, but we didn't take it out to the world. We didn't want the world to know how crazy we were. We didn't want the world to know how messed up the Bashams were. And, and, and Paul is saying, that doesn't make sense. It's the same thing here. The point Paul is making is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God has given us sufficient guidance to settle disputes. We have sufficient guidance. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. It's all covered. He's saying, go back to the Word. Go back to the sufficiency of the Word. Search through the Word. You're you're better than this. God has equipped you to deal with this. And he's saying, shame on you for having to go to the world to settle disputes amongst yourself when the Word of God has given you sufficient equipment to deal with this, sufficient wisdom to deal with it. And it's the same for us. Shame on us when we take our dirty laundry outside the church. When we talk about believers and fellow believers outside the church instead of going to the person and dealing with it. Shame on us. And that's exactly why I say it ties in. It's the same thing we saw last week in Matthew 18. The the objective was what? To keep the circle as tight as possible. To deal with it and keep as few people... Listen... I don't want everybody to know about my sin, and you don't want everybody to know about your sin. So let's love each other enough to keep it as tight as possible. That's what he's saying. Keep the stuff in-house. Because when you go outside, guess what you're telling the world? That the Word of God isn't sufficient. That God's power is not sufficient. That we have nothing, nothing that you don't have to help us deal with the things that uh, called sin. And that's not true. We do. But not only does it bring in question the wisdom of God, when we don't settle disputes in-house, we're damaging the witness before the world. We're damaging our witness before the world. He says that in verse six, verses 6 through 8, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? He says, actually, then it's already a defeat for you. He says, hey, win or lose, you lose. You may get your stuff back. You may get your right back. You may get your money back. But guess what? You've lost. You have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? 
On the contrary, you yourselves wrong into fraud. You do this to your own, to even your own brother. And, and Paul's foremost concern was with our ability to reach the world. That's why he's saying, keep it in house, deal with it in house, so that we can go reach the world. It, it all centered around the gospel. And he makes it very clear, there are no winners. There are no winners when you handle things like this. When you go outside of the church, when you go outside to the world and, and do these things, there are no winners. Absolutely no winners. And, and he literally says, why not rather be wronged in verse 7? And the question for us becomes this, is the gospel precious enough to us is it worth it enough to us that we would rather be wronged in order to maintain our ability to share the gospel is it worth it that i will take that i will be wronged so that i can still have a testimony and share the gospel and 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 hear me this passage hits close to home with what's going on with the building next door how, we, how we've tried to handle it. Why has it taken so long? Because we're trying to handle it the right way. It takes time. And, and, and I, don't, I, I, I don't tell y'all much about it. I don't feel the need to defend myself on this issue. I, at one day, Lord willing, when this is settled, I, I'll tell you everything that happened. You can look at every email I've ever sent. It doesn't matter to me if you put them on videos and you put the videos on YouTube and all this other stuff that they've done. I got nothing to hide. Nothing. We, we, listen to me. Because of the gospel, we pay the insurance every month on that building. We don't even have a key to it. Because of the gospel, we pay the electric bill every month on that building. Because of the gospel, we've paid the repairs that she is contractually obligated to make on that building every month. Because of the gospel, we do that. Because we don't want to hinder our witness. Are there days that that's, my flesh doesn't necessarily want to do that? Absolutely there is. I, I mean, forgive me, but you have a pastor who still struggles with some things. But the gospel is worth it. It's more precious. I leave here sometime on Wednesday nights and every light in that... And, and again, if you hear... I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just being honest. I'm not critiquing her. If you hear that, you're wrong. You've misinterpreted. I'm saying my own heart. I leave here and the lights are on and, I'm, and my flesh is like... Ugh. Pay the bill. Pay the bill, Chris. Some of you may say that's dumb. Some of you say it's foolish, whatever. I care more about the gospel than a little bit of electric bill every month. And we're going to pay it. And we're going to keep pursuing. Now there comes a point where it becomes a criminal issue and, and we'll get to that at the end and it's out of my hands at that point. God has, Romans 13, God has put the courts in their place for a reason. Paul himself appealed to the courts multiple times in Acts. I can't do anything about criminal issues. But we've got to be willing to suffer for the gospel. We will have rights and privileges and these things taken away, but the gospel matters more. Look with me at some passages. I just want to, I don't, so you understand it's the word of God making this point. Look up on the screens at 1 Corinthians 10.32. 
give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Give no offense. Give them nothing to talk about. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Listen, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Why do you do that? To behave properly toward outsiders. Look at 1 Timothy 6.1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of our God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Why? Protect the name and our doctrine. Look at Titus 2.5. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject. This is addressed to, to ladies. He's going to get men in a minute. Subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Look at verse 8 in Titus 2. Talking to men. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Look at verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of, our, of God, our Savior, in every respect. Look at Romans 2.24. This is a piercing one. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Our lifestyle matters. I hope you see why it matters. God's name, our doctrine, our gospel, they're at stake. For this reason, it would be better to be wronged than to air our dirty laundry. It would be better to be wronged. And think for a moment. Again, we're not talking about criminal issues. Please understand the context here. These are, these are disputes over property, most likely. These are disputes over money. And the desire is revenge. The desire is gain. The desire is a refusal to forgive. The desire is a love of material. That's why most, the vast majority of lawsuits are motivated for that reason. They're motivated for those reasons. Self. Self. Rights. Privileges. It's interesting in verse 12, right after this, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but, I will not, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. You know what we're mastered by today? Rights. You know what we're mastered by today? Pride. We're mastered by a lot of things. People say, well, I'm not mastered by that. Well, stop doing it. Put it down. Well, I don't want to... You're mastered by it. Put it down. And self. Again, everything breaks down when self comes to the center. And, and every single one of those things, the desire for revenge, the desire for gain, the refusal for to give, the love of the material, all contradicted by the Word of God. Every single one of those. And again, the gospel has to be at the center. Think about it. Forgiveness is at the center of the gospel, is it not? Forgiveness. Reconciliation is at the center of the gospel, is it not? And as such, they need to be at the center of our lives. And guess what? Those two principles transfer into chapter 7 when we're talking about divorce and remarriage as well. Forgiveness, reconciliation, they're still at the center. And they need to be at the center of our lives. The number one reason why Christians sue each other is, is statistical fact, because they refuse to forgive one another. Refuse to forgive. 
Because forgiveness costs. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness assaults our pride. Forgiveness doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to our flesh, and yet God says forgive. Why? Because I forgave you. I mean, look, look with me at Romans 12, 14 through 21. Refusal to forgive. Romans 12, 14 through 21. I'm going to read it out of my Bible. It'll come up on the screens. It's just a longer passage. Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Listen to this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your revenge will never be as right and as perfect as God's revenge. He will deal with sinners. And, and when I say revenge, vengeance is probably the better. He's going to deal with sinners, but it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be at the perfect time, and you let him deal with them. It's forgiveness. Look, look at Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We are to forgive others just as Christ forgave us. That's tough. Tough. Has Christ ever forgiven you multiple times for the same thing? Hmm. What about in the same day? You ever had to ask forgiveness for the same thing in the same day? I've probably had to repent in five minutes sometimes. I told you about my bad attitude on Wednesday. Huh. Same... He says, just as Christ forgave you, forgive others. We forgive others, the command, forgive others to the same degree that you've been forgiven. High standard. Is there anything that Christ will not forgive us of? Nope. Hmm. Will Christ ever stop forgiving you? Nope. High standard. What the Bible says is go and do likewise, Christian. Go and do likewise. Look at Colossians 3.12 and 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put in a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also. So also should you. Look, look at Matthew 6. This is a powerful passage. Not that any of them are powerful, forgive me, but it just is. For if you forgive others for their transgression, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Clear as day. The degree to which we're willing to forgive is the degree to which we'll be forgiven. Look at Luke 17, 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, what does it say? Forgive him. Oh, you've worn out your... You know, he don't really mean it. He don't really... Forgive him. Forgive him. It says forgive him. Here's the point. There's nothing that anyone will do to me that deserves forgiveness that will compare to what I've done to Christ. Nobody will sin against me to the same degree and depth that I sinned against Christ, and yet He forgave. Your offense to me will never compare to my offense to God. And He forgave me. And He says, go and do likewise. And and the demanding of our rights, the demanding of our rights is absolutely opposed to the gospel. Look with me at 1 Peter 2, 21. It'll come up on the screens, verse through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Listen to this. Convicting. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Remember, this is our example. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. That's the example. Oh, and by the way, in the context, you know what he immediately goes into? He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive. Verse 7, you husbands, in the same way. The same way as what? The same way Christ did. The same way Christ did. That's our standard. And and we, we must be willing to sacrifice our rights to make much of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Our rights, our rights are not as important as our testimony. We need to be people that look after our testimony and let God deal with our rights. Romans 12, again, he says, hey, you don't worry about that. I got that. I'll take care of you. You, you leave that up to me. You do what you're supposed to do. You leave that up to me. That's faith. And a ton is at stake. It is better to suffer. Paul says it is better to suffer and be wronged, allowing God to deal with that, than to alienate a fellow believer of the world. By refusing to forgive. It's better to be wronged, he says. Because the gospel. And it's not for my pride. It's not for anything else. It's for the gospel. It's for the gospel. I mean, and think about this. The believers, in, these same believers, refused to deal with a man who, was, who had a relationship with his stepmom. But yet they did deal with one another who had these trivial little issues over money. So they refused to deal with sin over here, but, in, but embarked in sin over here. That's, that's the problem with us sometimes. And the illustration, as I was thinking about an illustration, and, and I'm, I'm hesitant because I know many of you are praying for Natalia, little eight-year-old girl, and, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she may have to go through this, but I've had to visit people in the hospital who have had to have a limb removed to save the body. Okay, their their health was was saved by removing a limb. And you see, 
The health of the church may be saved by removing a right. The health of the church may be saved by just forgiving, but the health of the church is most important. What they're saying is, you tough decision, not saying it's easy. You can have my arm, but save the body. You know what I'm saying? Paul is saying, you can have my rights, but protect the body. Protect the body, because the body's most important. Because if the body goes away, it doesn't matter what you did with the arm. And, and we must protect the body more than ourselves. We must care about the testimony and the integrity of the gospel more than ourselves. So, so not only no matter what it costs us, we're willing to pay the cost, but, but the reputation, secondly, the reputation and testimony of the gospel and the church call us for us to become who we really are. That's ultimately what Paul is saying here. Become who you are. Instead of fighting over our rights, he says, why don't we celebrate what God has done and is doing in us with, with the new life that he's given us? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. He's saying, you're not acting up to who you are. They're... they're, they're the phrase, do you not know, that is a phrase Paul is using that to their shame. They know better. When Paul writes that, he's saying, you know better. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, we do know better. And what they had forgotten was that they were different from the world. They don't play by the world's rules anymore. They don't live by the world's standards anymore. Different set of rules, different standard, different focus, different goal, different purpose. They'd been freed from their sin. Why were they going back and living in it? It made no sense. And every one of the sins listed here in verses 9 and 10 have this in common. They're self-indulgent and they're self-servant. Exactly the kind of things that would lead us to sue another believer. They had been saved from the penalty of their sin and they were in danger of not living like it. And he says, point blank in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, the wicked, the, the non-believers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying, hey, their penalty is coming. Don't live like them. And, and what Paul is dealing with here in, in verses 9 and 10 is, a, is he is addressing a, a, a situation that could come arise for a so-called believer. We saw that back in verse 9 of chapter 5, or actually uh, verse 11. A, a, a so-called believer who had a persistent lifestyle that was opposed to Scripture. A persistent, like this is not a one-off sin, this is not an accident, this is not caught up in it, this is a persistent. He's saying, hey, you know what? The Holy Spirit's good for that. But, but Christians don't live that way, and if you're living that way, then there's a big question about whether you're a Christian, he'd say. Just like he said in verse 11, but I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a moral person. There's a question as to whether they're saved. It's not that they were saved and lost it. It's a question as to whether they're saved. But Paul, interesting here, Paul's response shows that he believes they are saved. They are saved. That's crazy to me. But his, his, he says, were, such were some of you. He doesn't question their salvation. Notice that. He assumes they are saved. And what he says is, hey, look back to who you were and who you are now and relish what you've become in Christ. Relish it. 
be who you are in Christ. And, and in spite of their sin, in spite of their failure, their identity had changed, but it did not compromise their Christianity. They were not, as believers, who they were as non-believers. And what does Paul do? Paul reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them here of their standing before God. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. That's the gospel. And how could Paul do this? The reason Paul could do this is because of this. Our standing before God is never based on our work for Him. It's based on His work for us. And Paul reminds the believers of what Christ did for them, what they had received, and who they were. We don't change our moral life and then come to Christ. We come to Christ and then are changed. The Holy Spirit changes us. And what he's saying is Christians ought to have a marked change about their life. And the issue isn't how good or bad you've been. It's, it's do you have a relationship with Christ? And the crazy thing here is, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers were inherited in the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. Guess what the church at Corinth was made of? Everything you see in verses 9 and 10. That's who God was saving. That's the kind of people that God was building His church out of. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. That's a motley crew right there. I look at my own life. The world wouldn't have picked me. Only God in His grace would pick Chris. The world wouldn't, wouldn't I have nothing to do with Chris. Nothing about Chris that would warrant him getting chosen, and yet God chose me. Yet God said, I'll send my son to die on the cross for Chris. And you know what he did? He did that for the whole world. 1 John 2 said he paid the penalty not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And Paul says, don't forget that. Don't forget that. Don't forget the change. Don't forget who you were and who you are now. And Paul is telling the Corinthians and us that our new life demands and provides for a new lifestyle. It demands it, but it provides for it. That's what Christ offers. Not a perfect life, but a transformed life. We won't be perfect, but we're being transformed. That's what sanctification talks about. It's a process. And, and that is the greatest proof of Christianity is a transformed life. John 13, 34, and 35 says, The badge of a Christian is love. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, by your love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the proof. And, and guess what? We'll get to Lord willing, chapter 13. Guess what kind of love? Love is patient. The kind of love we're called for is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act becomingly, unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't, count into, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. This kind of love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Forgive. Forgive. 
And in this context, he's saying, why would you sue? He's saying, know and believe who you are in Christ and live it out by the power of God. You've been washed. Live forgiven. That's what he says. You've been washed, cleansed of your sins. Live forgiven. You've been sanctified. Live holy. You've been justified. Live redeemed. That's what he's saying. Live it out. And again, the context of this, just to bring it home applicationally, we, we are not to sue over personal gain. That's what he's saying. Never as an act of, out of an act of revenge, out of an act of, of just personal, but, but, we, but we will go to the wall to protect the work of God. Hear me and hear me clearly. Never as an act of revenge, Never any of these other things, but we will. Paul did that. Paul appealed to the Roman law multiple times in Acts. Why? To protect the work of God. He allowed the courts to do their thing to protect the work of God. And that's where we have to be quick. We, we can be come to this and say, Christians should never sue. That's not what Paul is saying. There, Christians should just be walked all over. That's not what Paul is saying. If someone commits a criminal act against you and a criminal offense, there is the court that God has put in motion to protect you. Let the courts do their thing. That's what he's saying. God has put the government in place to protect us and uphold his laws. We need to let them do their job. Do you forgive them? Absolutely, but they're still going to go to jail. You come after Karen and hurt Karen, by God's grace, I forgive you, but you're going to jail. And I pray that I wouldn't have an attitude that's glad. I I pray that I would forgive you. But guess what? The court says, you do this, you go to jail. You go to jail. And the government and its agencies are in place to deal with criminal issues. What Paul is dealing with here are, are personal disputes that ought to be able to settle with forgiveness and with the wisdom that the Word of God offers. There ought to be somebody in here wise enough that can sit down with the two parties and work out an amicable agreement. That's what he's saying. There ought to be. We ought to be able to go back to the Word of God and say, this is what it says, do it. Okay. And what is dealt with here are mostly are issues of property and issue of personal rights. Things that we ought to be willing to lay down for the protection and the integrity of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.13, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Did he have a right to eat meat? Absolutely did. He said, if it's an issue, I'll never eat meat again. Why? Because the gospel is more important. And so some questions to help us make decisions. Should I do this or not? Is this criminal or am I doing this for personal gain? Questions to ask yourself. Am I seeking justice for somebody who has been harmed? Or am I seeking personal gain or or vengeance to myself? Does this this act hinder the cross or does it hinder my testimony? Does it damage the church's reputation? Is the gospel hindered or is it promoted? And, And regarding the second point, live out who you are. Is it obvious to those around you that you're a believer? Is it obvious that you're saved? It ought to be. 
Karen would never tell you this, and she just she had this happen yesterday, and I thought last night as I was going over this, I'll, I'll share it with her. I'll share it. I'll brag on her for a minute. She wouldn't probably wouldn't tell you this, but it, she might have put it on Facebook already. I don't know. But um, she was at Target yesterday and uh, doing her thing in Target, and uh, over her there was a guy dressed in his full military outfit on the phone, and and. Karen could hear them talking. He was very, being very polite, very courteous. But there was a, there was a misunderstanding, and, and she overheard the conversation. The guy, the soldier is saying to his credit card company, he needed to get $40 so that he could put gas in his car to drive to Orlando to pick up his family. They were flying into Orlando in two hours. And he had just gotten back from serving overseas, and there was a problem with the credit card company authorizing the user of this card to get $40 and I guess proving that he was who he was and, you know, there was just a delay. And, and so Karen's overhearing this and the guy was being very polite with, but he was just saying, sir, you don't understand. Every person I've talked to, I've told them this and they were just putting him off and putting him on, putting on. So my wife being the crown, the good thing that she is, walked up to him and said, hey, sir, I, let me give you the $40. I'll just give you the $40. And, and he said, no, no, I can't take that. And he goes on with the phone call and continues. Finally, Karen walks over and says, look, I'm going to give you the $40. Forget about it. Well, by this time, I guess there were some other ladies around that overheard it and saw it. And so now they're getting involved. And so they all pitched in and gave the guy, I guess, $20 each. So, so they gave him $60. But, but the point is this, Karen's act caused other people around her to take notice and to get involved. Could she have minded her own business? Absolutely she could have. Could she have found a myriad of reasons, of things to do with that money? Absolutely she could have. But she's giving honor to whom honor's due. She's getting involved. And, and this man has served our country faithfully and, and can't get $40 to drive pick up his family. Matthew 5, it made me think about Matthew 5. It says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's exactly what she was doing. It's exactly what she was doing. That's what we all ought to be doing. Let your light shine. I pray that our lives would be marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that people would see our lives and get involved and say, What in the world are you doing? Well, let me tell you why. And she had a chance to share with them. I mean, it, it, it's there. They're there. But our lives need to be marked by a difference. We're new creatures. We're new creations. And I pray that our lives will be marked by a difference.